Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know when you come to particular books of the Bible that there are certain events that take place in that particular book uh, that begin to eclipse what this book is actually about. I think when you come to Jonah, this is what we find. We find too often what immediately comes to your mind when you think of Jonah. And let me ask you that question. What comes to your mind? Immediately when, when I say the book of Jonah, what do you find usually what parents will tell to their children? It'll be something about Jonah and they'll say the whale. Not often do they say the great fish, they'll usually say the whale. And that will be that which predominates the whole book. It'll be all about that and they're missing it. It's not about Jonah and the great fish. It is about the glory, the wonder, the mercy, and the compassion of our God. That's what the book of Jonah is about. The one who calls those out of darkness into the marvelous light. Those that redeem those wretched individuals, God-hating individuals, and brings them to himself. This is what the book of Jonah is about. It's about the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. Now again, you know that it's often eclipsed because we're looking at all of the events and not looking at the God who is the one sovereign over all of these events. God shows himself sovereign. Did you notice in our, our scripture reading that it's God that caused the plant to grow up and it's God who created the worm specifically to eat that plant so that the Jonah no longer had the shade. God is sovereign over the creation. From the littlest worm to the biggest fish of the ocean, God is sovereign. He creates a great fish to swallow up Jonah. To be there when Jonah is cast overboard, to swallow him up, to take him down to Nineveh. This was God's design and His purpose. He is sovereign over the greatest of the beasts that He has created and over the tiniest of beasts He has created as well. He is sovereign over the vegetation, the plant, as God caused it to grow up. He is sovereign over people. He is sovereign over the sailors that are on the ship. He is sovereign over all of the people in the city of Nineveh. He is the sovereign one over Jonah, the prophet. God is the sovereign one and He shows Himself as strong and as mighty and as sovereign. But He also shows Himself as gracious and long-suffering. Do you identify with Jonah? Because often I think what we do when we read the Scriptures is we want to immediately abstract ourselves from the bad boys of Scripture. Well, I certainly am not like that. Beloved, that's you and that's me. We are just like Jonah. We are more like Jonah than unlike Jonah. We are those that are commissioned to go into all the world with the gospel of Christ. We are called to be a people that seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Having the confidence of knowing 
that all the other things will be added unto us. And how many of us have or are presently seeking our own kingdom? Seeking our own wills? How many of us pray the prayer, Thy will be done, but you know you want your will to be done? And you're striving for your will to be done. You're twisting, turning, and manipulating so you can get your will done. We're just like Jonah. We pray the Lord's Prayer and we go out with the intention of getting my will done. So don't be too quick to remove yourself from this scenario and seeing yourself in this as well. Jonah is interesting because in the beginning you find him, he is like the prodigal son. He is running from the Lord. But isn't it interesting also that the best prayer that Jonah prays is in the worst place. The best prayer is in the belly of the fish. But we find, he find, he, we find the worst prayer that he makes is in the best place that he could be. And this is where the Spirit of God is moving in the hearts of the Ninevites to bring salvation. There's a mass revival taking place. And you see the way that Jonah prays in chapter 4. Because in chapter 4, you know what he's like? He's like the elder son. He's no longer like the prodigal. Now he's like the elder son. And he wants to condemn everybody else and think that I deserve all of these blessings. I've been with you all this time. Isn't that us? Isn't that Psalm 73? Isn't that Asaph? Isn't that us? Lord, why do you give my neighbor, who is an unbeliever and a blasphemous guy, why do you give him such crops? Why does he seem to not have any, pro any problems or pain in his life? Seems like everything goes well. He's got the newest gadgets, new tractors, new trucks, new everything. And here I am, struggling along. And we want to say, don't we? That's not fair. I have done. Oh, that's our problem. It's all about me, isn't it? The song, it speaks in this way. I don't want it anymore to be about me. Because of sin, I always want it to be about me. But it's not about me, O oh Lord. Let it not be about me. That's what you find with Jonah in this last section, this last scene that we find in Jonah's life. Beloved, from the beginning, it was always God's intention to redeem a multitude from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language of this world. Red, yellow, black, and white. God has ordained, according to His covenant promise, that the people of God would be as the sand by the seashore in number. Numerous. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing to the nations. And he was a blessing to the nations as the gospel then spread to all the nations of the earth. We find that at Pentecost. 
In the beginning, God redeemed the Jews. Why? Because they were of more number? No, Deuteronomy 8 is clear with that. Was it because they were better than the other people? No, it wasn't because of that either. It was because of the purpose of God. He set His love and affection upon them. Now, don't you recognize that in your own life? Why would God love me? Why would God save me? Certainly can't be about me. Because I know my heart. I know how wretched I am even as a believer. It can't be about me. And it isn't. It's according to His good purpose and pleasure that He redeemed you. He redeemed you, beloved, being wretched as you are, bringing you out of the darkness and depth of sin into the light and the wonder in Jesus Christ, that love of Christ, that you would praise God for the glory of His grace. That you would wonder and exalt in the salvation provided for you in Jesus Christ. What a wonder that God would save me, even me. And so this book stirs us up to that. Of the wonder of God's working. His wonder working power. To bring Gentiles. We find it from the book of Genesis. Of widening out the tent pegs. Making the tent larger. Why? There's going to be an increase. You know the mustard plant starts. And it starts small. It's the smallest of a seed. But it grows up and encompasses into a large plant. A large tree like looking plant. That many birds may nest in its branches. All different kinds of of birds. This is the gospel. It is the gospel net that's cast and all kinds of fish are scooped up in the net. And so you have with thinking about Acts chapter 10 and 11. Peter on the rooftop. Simon the tanner's house by the sea. There's a knock at the door. Three Gentiles. Peter's up on the rooftop and he is seeing is a, a trance is taking place in his life and he's seeing this great sheet come down out of heaven with all kinds of critters in it. All of these critters that were for him to eat were a violation of the Levitical law. So he hears a voice from heaven saying, Rise up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, Not so, Lord. Nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. And the Lord says, what I have cleansed, you must not call common. And in parentheses there, it says, thus purifying all foods. But the point is clear. Because the knock at the door were three Gentiles, corresponding with the sheet coming down three times. God had cleansed the Gentiles. And then Peter went with them, went into Cornelius' house, preached the gospel. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. And Peter knew at that point. God has granted unto the Gentiles salvation unto life. He goes to communicate this good news to the Jews and they accosted him. Just like Jonah. How dare you go in to eat with uncircumcised men. With these vile dogs of the Gentiles. Peter recounts from the beginning of what happened. Who am I to resist God? God has granted unto the Gentiles salvation Unto life. Jews are upset about it. Jonah's upset about it. Are you? Are you upset about people of other countries and language and nations and colors that the Lord redeems? Isn't it for us, beloved, to go out into the highways and the hedges and to bring the good news of the gospel and compel them to come in? No matter what color they are, 
no matter what language, no matter what nation, we are to compel them to come in, to go into the highways, the hedges, into the trenches, as it were, into the places that nobody wants to go. Go to them and speak the gospel. Or is it just us? We just huddle together and, and that's it. This is what Jonah does. Look at our text. Now, let's, let's start at verse 10 of chapter 3. Because it's not a good chapter break. Chapter 3, verse 10, we read, Then God saw their works and that they turned from their evil way. God relented from the disaster that he had said that he would bring upon them. <clears throat> and he did not do it as I have dealt with that last Lord's Day, but here's, it runs right into this. But it displeased Jonah. <laughs> this is the worst prayer in the best place. He is watching a revival unfold in front of him. He's watching people get into sackcloth and put ashes on their head, which is abject humility before the Lord, confessing their sins to God, crying out for mercy. And here's the prophet of God with his hands folded saying, I, I knew it. I knew that's what you would do, Lord. You're just too merciful and you're too compassionate. This is what Jonah is getting from Exodus 34. Notice what we read in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And the Lord passed before him, this is Moses, and the Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquities and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation. But, as it says, God is merciful. He is gracious. He is long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. The thousands are not thousands of individuals. They are thousands of generations. God keeps mercy of thousands of generations to those who love Him. To those who are called according to His purpose. This is our God. What a gracious God. Are you grateful today? Are you thankful today? Are you a one who is in wonder and love and praise that God is long-suffering and compassionate and He has spared you? That we deserve damnation? If you come to the place in your life where you can confess that you deserve both temporal and eternal damnation, that you have broken all the commandments of God, the wages of sin is death, but God's gift, God's wondrous gift, God's merciful gift is Christ. And Christ is salvation. And the Father gave His Son to redeem a multitude, beloved. Are you thankful today that God has redeemed even you? You see, it becomes a difficulty if you have been raised up in the church. Then you think, well, I've done this all my life. What do you have in store for me, Lord? I've done all these things. If you're believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the wondrous grace and mercy in Christ. That is not your doing. That is His doing. Should you be displeased as Jonah that God redeems those from other countries? Would you be displeased if God had a revival take place in Russia? Would you be displeased if Putin was saved? Would you be displeased if you were a Jew and the gospel came to Hitler and the Lord redeemed him and changed the man's mind and the direction of his life? Would you be displeased about that? 
Would you be displeased if our president was redeemed? Are you wanting judgment? Or are you wanting mercy? It's a question, isn't it? James tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment comes to those who have shown no mercy. God brings that judgment. Blessed are the mercifuls, for they shall receive mercy. It's really a strange thing that Jonah becomes angry. He's a hot mess. He's emotional. So oftentimes what happens to us as believers, isn't it? The anger uh, and emotional response to certain situations. I get it. I've been there. I've had it happen. Recently. Got angered recently over a situation. And I wanted to respond. And I knew it wouldn't be pleasant. And I knew it would be an act of vengeance. And I wanted to do it. And I thought for a moment, and I prayed, I said, Lord, keep me from sinning against you, because if you don't, I will. And, you know, 10, 15 minutes went by, and I calmed down, and, and I didn't respond. Oh, but I will respond, just not in anger. Anger, that emotion, can really cause us to do irrational things. It's interesting that often in Scripture, what we are called to put off is the sinful emotions. We want to think it's righteous indignation. But I'll say that it's probably one in a hundred that it's righteous indignation. Oftentimes it's because we have personally been wronged and we get angry about it. That's when Jesus begins to speak about personally turning the other cheek. Jonah is angry. So notice he comes to the Lord in his prayer and he prays to the Lord and says, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said? He's trying to justify himself. When I was still in my country. Why did you have to send me down here? You could have redeemed them. You could have used that worm or that plant. Why did I have to come? And so he's angry. And he's justifying his actions. And he is really castigating the Lord, isn't he? He's really questioning God's moral character. What are you doing? It reminds me in Sunday school, as I had said. <clears throat> I've heard preachers say things like this before. If I were God... I mean, you want to take a bat, don't you, and just smack him over the head? Wake up! That's blasphemous to say that. To question the ways of the Almighty. But that's the depth of sin that still resides within us. We get angry at the providence of God. Now, before we say too quickly that, yeah, that's blasphemy, and how could they ever do that? We do that daily. When things don't go our way, we question the providential hand of God. What is God doing in my life? Why are you doing it that way? Because I want this. We question the wisdom of God. Therefore, Jonah says, I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are gracious. Notice he knows this. Jonah's his theology is square. It's straight. It's right on. 
Spot on, as we would say. He knows God to be gracious. Jonah's received the grace of God. He knows God to be long-suffering and merciful. He has received the mercy of God. God has been long-suffering towards Jonah. Think about this whole event. This didn't take a day, beloved. This took a length of time for Jonah to do all the things that he did, to appear where he did, till he finally was at Nineveh, preaching in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. God was long-suffering. He didn't snuff him out. He didn't kill him and say, I'll get somebody else for the job. He bore with him. How about you and me? Same thing, isn't it? God bears long with us. That God is gracious. God is gracious. This is different than his providence. Let's get categories straight. Let's talk about categories for a second. There is in scripture categories of sinners and saints. Sinners are totally depraved, God-haters in Adam spiritually. Saints are those redeemed by the grace of God in Christ Jesus and are united to Jesus Christ, no longer in Adam, no longer totally depraved, but still sinful. Putting off and putting on continually. They are new creations in Christ. They have new desire, new disposition, new love, new affection, new direction. They are not totally depraved sinners. Those are categories that the scriptures speak about. So let's speak about the providence of God. That is his ruling over all things in heaven and on earth by his particular power to bring to pass his particular purpose and plan. The bounties of God's providence are seen in the rain, in the sunshine, in the bounties of a crop. The rain bringing and bringing the nourishment that needs to the crop of providing in this way. The things that unbeliever and believer alike receive. That is the providential hand of God. God gives all men the things that they receive. He gives all men things to enjoy. But when it comes to the heart of the unbeliever, he does not say thanks. He does not have a heart of faith. And therefore, to use the good gifts that God has given is sin for that unbeliever. Because everything apart from faith is sin. So really, it's not the gift, it's the heart of which it comes to. There is an example given in Hebrews 5. When the rain comes upon a parched land and then the water just runs off and it doesn't produce a crop, that land is cursed. The analogy is spoken of of the heart of man. Because the heart of man is to produce a bounty, some 30, 60, 100 fold from the benefits and the bounties that God gives to us. It is to produce for the glory of God. And if it doesn't, it is under a curse. But that's no way to say, and, and I'm not saying that God doesn't give the good gifts. He certainly does. But that's not grace. Grace is distinctly the salvific work of Christ that changes the disposition and the sphere of an individual from being dead to alive and in Adam to being in Christ. That is the grace of God. That is a particular working of benefits of Christ for His people that makes substantial changes in the life of individuals. That is not common. That is particular. 
What often is referred to as common grace is the providence of God. And that is not grace. That is not salvific. That does not change the heart. It doesn't matter how much an unbeliever gets rain and sunshine. It's not going to change the heart of the individual. I had an argument one time with regards to those two categories, providence and grace. And the, the individual said that the grace of God, common grace was seen in the rain and the sunshine. And I asked this question, is the grace in the elements? Is it in the rain and the sunshine? And then I posed this argument. I said, if it is, then we need to bring all the unbelievers in and run them through the Lord's Supper. Because if grace is in the elements, maybe this would be the converting ordinance and God would bring them to faith through the bread and the wine. And we all know that the bread and the wine are for those that are regenerate. So he paused and he says, no, no, grace is not in the elements. I said, then stop calling it common grace. Because salvation is particular. The providence of God is common to all men. Comes to all men. But salvation does not. God is gracious. He's merciful. In what way is God merciful? He withholds from us what is rightly due. What is due to you and I? What was due to Jonah? Damnation. What was due to the Ninevites? Damnation. But God withholds that punishment and doesn't give them what they deserve. In grace, He gives them what they don't deserve. He gives them Christ and all of His benefits. His perfect righteousness, holiness, and satisfaction, so which I stand before God as righteous in Jesus Christ. It's a wonder of grace. But God doesn't give me what I deserve. On the cross, beloved, Christ takes our desert. What we are deserving, Christ takes. He cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because that's what we deserved. He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because that's what we deserved. We deserve the wrath of God, the punishment of God. We deserve it. God withholds it because he's merciful. Mercy and grace, hear this, mercy and grace is never, ever, ever obligatory. God does not owe grace and mercy to anyone. We all deserve justice. But in this other category that is not injustice, but it's not justice, it's grace and mercy. And if you can come up with a reason in yourself of why God has grace and mercy upon you, then you don't understand mercy and grace, beloved. Because you ought to be scratching your head. And you would say, what an ineffable work of the Spirit that I was blind, but now I see. Why me? Because it's for the purpose of God, for His glory. We read that distinctly in Ephesians chapter 1. To the praise of the glory of His grace for His own sovereign purpose. He raised you up. He called you out. He called you out from the rest of humanity to be His own. For the purpose and the praise and the glory of God. That we will be those, as it were, those, the treasures 
uh, he makes a wretch his treasure that will be trophies that will be given to Christ for the glory of his work. God is merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. Are you merciful? You know, we're here, we're confessing that we're forgiven of God. How quick are you to be merciful to others? Jonah wasn't real quick. Jonah wanted justice. You know who justice is for? Justice is for the unrepentant. It's for those who will not, and they continue to harden themselves in their sin. They will not repent. Justice falls upon them. That is the rock that falls upon them, that grinds them to powder. But mercy are those that fall upon the rock and are broken to pieces. We're broken. A broken spirit and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. If you've received mercy, do you extend mercy? Is mercy seen in your life? Are you merciful to other people because you have received it? Are you gracious towards other people? Well, they didn't deserve it. It's not about them deserving, is it? Are you gracious and kind and long-suffering to others because this is what God has extended to you? Or do you do like Jonah and you bottle it all up? Me and me alone. God is slow to anger. I wish I was more slow to anger. I desire to be more slow to anger. That's a work. That's a prayer, right? Lord, help me to not be angry. God is slow to anger. He is abundant in loving kindness. This is his covenant faithfulness. Hesed is the Hebrew term. God's covenant faithfulness. When we deny him, he doesn't deny us. God does not deny himself. He can't go back on his promises. When we're unfaithful, he remains faithful. When we're unfaithful to our covenantal vows, he remains faithful. Because to be unfaithful to deny who he truly is, he's faithful. God is our faithful, long-suffering, abundant and loving kindness God who relents from doing harm. God predestined before the foundation of the world, as I said before, that the Ninevites would turn from their sin and God would relent the disaster in which he had said that he would bring upon them. You realize this is not happening at time God is making that decision. Known to God from eternity are all of his works. And so there was a predestinating of that. And there is mystery in that, beloved. Stop trying to be all wise with the Almighty. There's mystery with this. That God so works in the heart and He creates faith within. And how does He do it? I don't know. I don't know how I could be blind and then I can see. I don't know how I can be a one day hater of Christ and then I love Him. I don't know how that happens. I don't know how the Holy Spirit does that work. I only know that He does it. I know that I was blind and now I see. I know I was dead, but now I've been made alive in Christ Jesus. I knew that I once ignored the things of God. I didn't care one whit about the things of God. And now I love and desire the things of God in my life. I want more of the things. I need more. How does that happen? I don't know. 
Did I believe on Christ? Yes. But the scripture tells me that apart from the regenerating work of the Spirit, creating faith within, I could not, I would not believe. Well, then how did that happen? I don't know. That's mysterious to me. But the scripture teaches it, beloved. He sweetly and softly bends your will to do the will of God. That's how the Holy Spirit works. You are reared up in this congregation from an infant. And the next thing you know, at 16, 17, 18 years old, you recognize that you're believing and you're trusting Jesus. And you're not coming here because your parents come. It's because you want to worship the Lord. How did that happen? Sweetly and softly sitting under the ministry of the Word, the Spirit worked within you. How do you explain that? I can't. It's beyond my comprehension. It's too high. It's too deep. I cannot attain to it. But I can tell you that it happens. God relents. He refrains from doing harm. Aren't you glad? God has refrained from doing harm to us. When we are worthy and deserving, He doesn't give it to us. Now therefore, O Lord, please take my life. Look at it. I'm just like Jonah. Here he is, he wants to die. He wants to be done with this whole mess. I've been there. I know exactly. I'm not going to put Jonah down too far because I'm right there with him. I understand what it means. I'm done, Lord. I'm so done. Just take my life. I don't want to live anymore. It's better for me to die than to live. And again, this is irrationality, isn't it? It's emotionalism. It's not thinking. My mind is not being reflecting upon the teaching of God's word. It's not viewing things through the lens of scripture. It's forgetting about the providence of God. Beloved, I have forgotten about the providence of God many times in my life. I have forgotten about the providence of God as a believer. As a preacher, I have forgotten about the providence of God. And then the Lord always brings me back and recalibrates my mind. And then, ah, yes, Lord. Okay, your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. This is what happens with the anger. We're an emotional mess. We say things that just fly right out of our mouth, and they're coming from the heart, and you realize, don't you? Man, my heart is sinful. What is man that you are mindful of him? Lord, why do you bear long with me? Why am I not like the plant that you just send a worm just to destroy me? Why am I not like that? Because God is merciful and long-suffering and slow to anger. He bears long with us. Teaches us a lesson, doesn't it? There's a parable. Jesus speaks this way. There's a tree that is out in the, the garden area and, and it's, it's withering. It's dying. And Jesus says to the disciples, cut it down. All it is doing is taking up space. And the disciples say to him, Lord, let us dig around it. Let us cultivate. Let us fertilize. And see what happens next year. Oh man, that's like a dagger in my heart. And the Lord says these things to test his disciples. And they're long suffering. Let us work with it. 
Let us come alongside of it. Let us do something with it. If it bears fruit, well. If not, then you can cut it down. But let us give forth the effort. I've done that with people. More run away than want to help. Oh, they'll say, but they run. And then I'm blamed for that. I've cut down the tree. I, I didn't cut down the tree. They ran away. That's how it is in the life of the church. When something conflicts with another individual's desires, their morality, whatever it may be, they leave. And all kinds of things are said about the, the church is so cold, it's so nasty, they're hard, blah, blah, blah. One-sided story, which isn't the case. But when people come and say, I'm struggling, all right, let's dig. Let's dig around it. Let's fertilize it. Now, how do you do that? You plant the word deep around the soil of the individual's heart. It's the Spirit of God who sinks it in. It's the work of the counselor to bring the word, to cultivate, to keep on planting, keep on pushing it into the ground and praying that the Holy Spirit sinks it deep. That's what we need. So Jonah's angry. And then the Lord asks him, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah doesn't respond at this point, though he went out got up underneath the shade and pouted. Isn't that us? Don't get what I want. I prayed for the Lord to bring this again and again and again, and I didn't get what I wanted. So now I'm going to pout. You know how I pout? I pout this way. I'm not coming to worship. I'll show God. I'll just stay home and watch the ball game on Sundays. I'm not praying. I'm not reading the Bible anymore. I'm not doing it. I'm going to pout. And I, I've, I've seen and I've heard a lot of that in the life of the church. That gets you nowhere. You continually go down a spiral of sinking deeper and deeper into that abyss. You won't ultimately lose your salvation. That is an impossibility. But you'll be a miserable individual. And everybody will know it. Because I didn't get what I wanted when I asked the Lord, like you think he's some Santa Claus in the sky. Right? You pull the lever and you get your thing that you are the one that signed up for this. And God doesn't give you this until you get angry. It's a bad place to be, beloved. Have you been there? Are you there now? Your life is one running away from the Lord because you didn't get what you wanted. You're dissatisfied. You're discontent. I'm discontent. There are things that make me discontent. That's why we're doing Bible studies on Sunday evening. That's self-serving. Because I have discontent. And that discontent is kind of like something that has foamed up into my life and has come to the surface. Now I deal with it. And I confess it. Lord, forgive me for being discontent. Either change the situation of my heart my circumstances, whatever it may be, make me content. Because I don't like being discontent. I like to be content. I like to be satisfied with the Lord. Jonah's not satisfied. There's some of you that are not satisfied. Some of you that are discontent. Some of you that are pouting. You're angry with the Lord. Beloved, God is merciful. God is long-suffering. Confess it. To the Lord. He is faithful to forgive. He is faithful 
to restore us, even as he has done to Jonah. Jonah's restored to do the work. But God does that. Why send yourself down a continual long line of like a guillotine? Constantly going through this, that, and the other thing of miserableness in your life. Because God is disciplining you. Confess it. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess it to the Lord. He is merciful, long-suffering, kind. What an awesome God that we serve. We're all here as a demonstration of the awesome forgiveness, grace, and mercy of a wondrous God who rules over all things for his glory and for the good of his church. Amen. Shall we pray?